وما أرسلنا من قبلك إلا رجالا نوحي إليهم فاسألوا أهل الذكر إن كنتم لا تعلمون السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله Today we have a very uh, special Q&A uh, and we're going to start off by asking Sister Kanwal, Kanwal's question, I think from Canada I believe, uh, where she asks the Islamic ruling on celebrating uh, Thanksgiving. She asked this last month because uh, Canada has Thanksgiving different than America. And uh, Brother Imad also has emailed uh, a few months ago and I'm combining both of these and he is saying that can you please explain the ruling on various celebrations that we do here in America. He's writing from America and he begins with Thanksgiving, New Year's, birthdays, marriage anniversaries, Halloween's, Independence Day, Memorial Day, etc. And so today's question is going to uh, briefly discuss uh, the issue regarding uh, celebrations and participating in such celebrations. Now, uh, this topic is actually uh, far more difficult and convoluted than uh, comes to uh, first light. And before I even begin, uh, I do understand because I have so many um, you know, diverse people who follow that uh, automatically people are tending to be skeptical uh, of the entire topic. Uh, on the one hand, you have one group that basically says that isn't it a little bit petty that uh, you, people are asking you about uh, celebrating uh, Thanksgiving. And to that group, um, obviously we're talking about Muslims here, I say, well then where does one draw the line? Does one open the door for celebrating other religious festivals? Should Muslims uh, be celebrating uh, Christmas by having Christmas ornaments uh, or whatnot. So uh, before you trivialize the question, actually realize it's a very interesting question that deals with a number of topics. Uh, you can call it an intersectional topic. It deals with culture, it deals with theology, it deals with rituals. It's a very fascinating topic and uh, that's one group of people that are skeptical of the entire question and to them I say please understand it's a very reasonable question and it's one that does uh, have a, a a, a say in the religion and the fact that the religion does have a say about everything uh, really is something that we should pride ourselves on that our religion is a holistic religion and if the sharia has nothing to say then we will say that it is mubah but the sharia always has some verdict about anything. Uh, there is another group uh, that have already made up their minds and uh, they're simply uh, skeptical of any change of position. They know that this is haram. They are certain that any type of celebration is haram because they have heard very famous scholars and teachers, some of whom I consider to be my own teachers, uh, uh, say that the, any type of celebration is ritualistic and paganistic and therefore against the sharia. And so they have already made up their minds. Uh, and uh, to that group I say, that's great, alhamdulillah, no problem. If you are following respectable ulama, respectful ulama, and they are all respectful, then no problem. Uh, that's that's fine. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if you are open-minded, listen to the evidences and listen to the alternative uh, understanding uh, and see if there's any, uh, you know, if there's any change that happens. But in any case, uh, you're asking me my opinion and obviously uh, I will be giving this from my uh, perspective. Uh, this is going to be a very long lecture. It's going to be in the entire uh, episode today is going to be answering this one question and therefore 
For those of you who do not have the time to listen to the entire, uh, however long we're going to be talking, an hour or so, then I will summarize because I've been asked by a number of people to always summarize any long fatwas. I will summarize by stating that while I respect immensely uh, the opinion of those who say that it is not allowed, and I understand where they are coming from, and I sympathize with their paradigm, and I'm with utmost respect. At the same time, uh, I feel that that position is simply not justified, and that it does require us to uh, think through their cultural understandings of the religion of Islam. And I feel that the group that has forbidden uh, these things, uh, generally speaking, uh, are not as familiar with uh, Islam as it is practiced in other societies other than their own. And they make judgment calls that the Sharia uh, has taken into account that cultures vary. And so I believe that their understandings are a little bit culturally influenced or skewed. And because of this, they project their understanding of what should and should not be. And I'm not challenging their understanding for their peoples. They project it onto the globe. And I feel that they make some uh, judgmental errors in that uh, regard. And therefore, uh, while I respect that position, I state that uh, the majority position of modern scholars of the entire ummah is that celebrations and festivals, the default with regards to celebrations and festivals is that the Sharia is silent about them unless there is a ritual involved, there is a paganistic entity, uh, there is a, a, a deification uh, to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In that case, if there is a festival that is linked to a religion, inherently linked to a religion, then as Muslims, we should not and cannot celebrate it. Otherwise, the default, especially for private individual festivals or celebrations, is that the Sharia is silent about it. Neither does it encourage nor does it discourage. And perhaps one can make the argument that a festival of a public nature, that the entire society is enticed and encouraged, that an Islamic society should encourage regular festivals only of the two Eids, the Eid al-Fatr and Eid al-Adha. Any other type of festival, uh, it would not be encouraged and perhaps even an argument can be made that it is makru. This is my uh, opinion in a nutshell and I will inshallah ta'ala now uh, elaborate in more detail. Now, with regards to this question, the question primarily is about Thanksgiving, but I will extrapolate based upon the other brother's question about all types of festivals. The fatwas that we look at are pretty much all modern. And the reason for this is self-evident that the types of festivals we're talking about, uh, earlier ulama, ulama in the 10th century, 11th century uh, CE, they were not aware of these types of festivals. And uh, the notion of having a repetitive festival over and over again uh, is not something that they encountered. And therefore there are no fatawa that are written about Thanksgiving uh, in uh, early or in uh, medieval Islam. What we do find is of course generic talk and we'll talk a little bit about that in today's uh, lecture. So the fatwas dealing with the celebrations you're asking about are modern. And if you look at the modern scholars of the ummah across the globe, it is very easy to uh, demarcate two uh, uh, easily discernible camps. On the one hand, you have respectable, and they're both respectable, they're the great ulama on, on all sides. We, we respect all scholarship of Islam. On the one hand, uh, you do have uh, one group of scholars who uh, follows uh, the thought that is known as Salafism, uh, who generally speaking, almost entirely consider 
all types of festivals to be uh, ritualistic in nature. And so they argue that all types of festivals and celebrations other than Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha are not allowed. And they have two key arguments that they make. There's others, but there's two main ones. The first is that they say that rituals, sorry, the first is that they say that festivals and regularly repeating uh, celebrations are rituals. And because they're rituals, the Sharia has forbidden any type of ritual that it has not sanctioned. So the default, they would argue, when it comes to repetitive festivals is that they should be religious innovations or bid'ah, okay? So this is the first argument that they make. And they base this argument on uh, the famous, uh, a number of famous hadith. Of them is the hadith in Abu Dawud, in which Anas ibn Malik says that the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina and he found uh, the Ansar used to celebrate two days. And so he said to them, what are these two days? They said, they said, these are two days we used to celebrate in the days of Jahiliyyah. So the Prophet ﷺ said, indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has substituted two other days better than those two days, Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr. So this hadith is used by the first category of scholars to state that the fact that the Prophet ﷺ negated the other two days and he said Allah has given you two better days indicates that any other type of festival, any other type of, now the key word that they use is Eid, that Eid. And what does Eid mean? Well, when people use it generically, they mean a day of festivities, but linguistically Eid comes from Aada Ya'udu. And the famous scholar Shaykh Hussain ibn Taymiyyah, he writes in his book, Iqtidat Sarat al-Mustaqeem li Mukhalafati Ashab al-Jaheem, following the straight path in being different from the people of Jahannam. It's a two volume book in which he elaborates a lot on these notions of festivals, on, on these notions of Muslims having a separate identity from those other than Islam. Ibn Taymiyyah says that the term Eid means anything that comes back regularly, any place that you go back to regularly, or any time in which you do rituals, the same rituals every single day or every single season, this is gonna be called a type of Eid. And so uh, Ibn Taymiyyah argues that there are only two Eids in Islam. And any other Eid would by definition, so any other repetitive festival, let me put it this way, any other repetitive festival would be an Eid. And because Islam only has two Eids, Ibn Taymiyyah argues, any other repetitive festival that an entire society is embracing would constitute a third Eid. And therefore he says it is a bid'ah or a religious innovation because religious, because festivals are a part of the Sharia. Therefore, even if the festival is secular in nature, he would argue, even if it is something that is not inherently religious, because the Sharia has taken control over regular celebrations, it will be considered religious, and therefore it will be a innovation, a bid'ah into the religion. This is the first argument that is made, that any repetitive public festival is a uh, Eid and every Eid other than the two Eids is uh, considered to be an innovation. The second argument that uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and those who follow him uh, make is that they say there is an element of imitating uh, those outside of the faith. 
and the Sharia has evidences that indicate that Muslims should not in, should not imitate those outside of the faith, as in the famous hadith of Abu Dawood that our Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "Man tashabbaha biqawmin fahuwa minhum." Whoever imitates a group of people shall be considered amongst those people. Whoever imitates a group of people shall be considered amongst those people. So they argue that our ancestors did not celebrate any of these things, whether they were birthdays, whether they were Thanksgiving, whether they were anything of the, even if they're not necessarily religious. So they would say any of type of these types of celebrations would be imitation of the non-Muslims. And then they say, if the celebration is religious in nature, such as uh, let's say, uh, uh, the uh, the celebration of Easter, which is inherently uh, Christian, or uh, Hanukkah, which is the Jewish one, you know, or Diwali, or which is the Hindu one, right? Or any other celebration, the celebrations of the Zoroastrians, Nowruz, whatever it might be, that they would say that any celebration that is religious is even more haram or more sinful, but even if it is not religious, like the 4th of July, or like a birthday, for example, they would argue that it is both bid'ah and Tashabu al-Kufar, which is imitating the non-Muslims, and it is haram. So they're going to make a two key argument. It is a religious innovation, and of course all religious innovations are haram anyway. But on top of this, they say it is also imitating other civilizations and cultures. So that is uh, their argument in a nutshell. And uh, they have other arguments, but these are frankly not uh, not very strong. For example, that there's israf or money being spent, and the response to this is we all spend money on things that we can argue is israf. We cannot make this haram just because of this. Or they say that there's intermixing or whatnot, and we say, you know what, that is going to be, if you consider that to be uh, not moral, uh, even though the term intermixing is needs to be clarified, but I'm saying any other argument that is used, it's not as strong, and we can easily uh, conduct ourselves in a manner that these other arguments are not going to be the primary ones. The two primary arguments are bid'ah and tashabbub al-kuffar. Excellent. That's the summary of the first position. Now, I have to say that those are solid points. It's a good paradigm. I respect that opinion. And it was uh, one that I was taught as well by uh, many of my teachers. In fact, all of my teachers pretty much felt, uh, pretty much all of my teachers felt that way. Um, it is the, the position that is advocated by uh, the modern Salafi movement. Uh, when we look at it though, the, the other movements or interpretations of Islam, Scholars that belong to other trends, generally speaking, they don't uh, derive these rulings. And the question arises, why not? And uh, those who are followers of the Salafi movement, I speak to them with respect and say that, you know, also look at other scholarship and see where they're coming from and look at their paradigms. Islam is indeed uh, a very beautiful and vast religion and the Sahaba themselves differed amongst themselves. And it is possible that two positions can both be worthy of respect and uh, both have solid arguments, but in fact, one of them uh, in the end of the day is going to outweigh uh, the other. And uh, on a personal note, this is a very personal note I'll say here, especially to uh, the audience of mine that uh, is sympathetic to that strand. Uh, when I used to study at the University of Medina, uh, as most of you should be aware that uh, I definitely was uh, a part of that strand and I uh, identified with that uh, with that interpretation. Uh, but uh, over the course of the last 20 years, you know, I have, um, you know, uh, been re rethinking through a lot. and. This issue of celebrations uh, was actually one of the first issues that I began to disagree with the movement about. And this was when I was in Medina studying at the master's level uh, in the Department of Theology. And I began having debates and discussions, you know, with other students, those that were there know this uh, very well. And this was actually one of the main issues that 
uh, I began saying that it doesn't it doesn't add up. You know the definitions that they have to extrapolate it onto uh, you know these things that they're saying is haram, like celebrations of anniversaries or birthdays. I said that it does not add up, and I began to argue politely. You know, argue meaning debate or you know go back and forth with my colleagues and even some of my teachers. And uh, uh, some of them, of course, uh, were uh, in agreement. Uh, uh, the famous scholar Sheikh Salman Al Aouda, of course, is of the position that I'm advocating, and others as well. So the point being that there are other opinions out there. And if you choose to follow one position, that is fine, but understand that there are other opinions that have solid evidences and uh, are coming from other paradigms. And inshallah, we're gonna explain why the other school does seem to actually make more sense. Now this issue is a little bit technical. We're gonna have to go back to definitions. We're gonna have to go back to what exactly is a bid'ah and how do we understand the concept of Eid or celebrations and what is the perspective of the other schools of thought with regards to these ahadith that the first school uh, brings? And what is the uh, understanding of tashabbu or imitation? Because here's the point, depending on how you define bid'ah, the rest of your talk is gonna be based upon that. How do you define imitating the non-Muslim? The rest of your talk is gonna be based upon that. So we have to go back to definitions. We have to go back to the very bases of these concepts and topics. And we need to understand that there are scholars from the very beginning of Islam who have defined bid'ah and understood bid'ah in a very different manner than other scholars. And I actually have a longer talk online, which I don't have time to repeat right now, but you will find it online and that is entitled Defining Bid'ah. Uh, the, there's an entire topic about how classical ulama define the notion of bid'ah and the fact that there has been, since the beginning of Islam, an area that has slightly been disputed, that is this bid'ah or is this maslaha mursala? And you can go and look at it over there. There is a little area. There is of course bid'ah that is clear cut, that is contradicting basic understandings. If somebody were to think that, you know, dancing is a way to come close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, pretty much all the scholars would say that this is not the way you come close to Allah. We do not worship Allah, you know, through dance or through music or whatnot. That's something that is well known. At the same time, uh, there is a gray area and uh, one group of ulama define bid'ah to be that uh, any statement or ritual or action that is done that one expects Allah to reward him by doing and which has no basis in the sharia okay this is in fact Ibn Taymiyyah's definition now according to this definition uh, I argue that celebrating private celebrations can never constitute bid'ah. This is the argument that is made by many scholars of our times. Because when you celebrate an anniversary, when you celebrate a birthday, you are not intending for Allah to reward you as an act of worship. It's a generic festival. So the notion goes, how do you understand uh, bid'ah? And uh, the the notion as well of tashabbu, we're gonna come to, how do we understand uh, the issue of and uh, the issue comes, how does one understand as well the hadith of the people of Medina, the Prophet ﷺ coming and telling them that Allah has substituted for you two other days. The response is that if you look at the commentary of this hadith in many of the books of hadith, if you look at how this hadith has been understood, 
actually at face value from a standard mainstream uh, usul al-fiqh paradigm. What is usul al-fiqh? Usul al-fiqh is the science that is used to derive rulings from the texts, uh, from the sources. So how do you derive rulings from the sources of the sharia? What is the methodology to derive? So you have a verse of the Quran or you have a hadith of the Prophet how do you extract from it something is haram or halal, something is mubah or mustahab or makruh? How do you extract? There's a methodology that is called the science of usul al-fiqh. And if you look at uh, these traditions through the mainstream understanding of usul al-fiqh, the wording of the Prophet Sallallahu that Allah has substituted two days better than those two days. From that wording with mainstream usul al-fiqh, you cannot derive tahrim. You simply cannot. Allah has substituted two days better than other, than other two days. The maximum that you can derive is that celebrations similar to those are makruh. That's what it would say. Allah has substituted two days better than that too. That means that the max that can be said is that it is makruh. And also this hadith, uh, if you wish to use it for celebrations, can only apply to communal celebrations because that's what the hadith is about. That the Ansar were saying, we have two days that we used to uh, celebrate as a community. So you cannot use that hadith to even talk about celebrations in your house, something that you do with your children, with your family, with your friends. That hadith has nothing absolutely to do with uh, the notion of private celebrations. The maximum that one can derive, and actually I am sympathetic to this, no problem, you can quote me on this, that celebrations of a communal nature, societal nature, national nature, celebrations that the entire society is looking forward to in a Muslim land, definitely Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha should be the main ones. Anything other than this, one can argue that it is makruh. One can argue that scholars in particular should not be you know cheerleading for any celebrations like a national day or this day or parade day or whatnot if groups are doing it or the nation is doing it or whatnot you know even to argue it is haram from that hadith it's uh, not possible but if you say that it is makruh it's not something that we like and we agree i agree that any celebration that is done on a regular basis uh, why should scholars be encouraging? There's always gonna be something that is somewhat potentially problematic, such as a national day, for example. You know, in, in, inherently it is permissible to be proud of one's nation and whatnot, but it is possible to become nationalistic. It is possible to think you are better than other people. And these types of things are, you know, uh, feeding into that paradigm. So we have a fine line between being proud of who you are and, and happy at everybody else and being proud of who you are and looking down everybody else. So my point is that uh, the hadith of uh, the uh, Ansar having two days, uh, there is an assumption that one group has that it was a non-religious festival. That is an assumption. It is also possible to understand that there were no festivals in the days of Jahiliyyah that were quote-unquote secular in nature. In other words, it is equally plausible to assume the opposite. And that is that the festival that used to occur must have involved some type of paganism because all festivals of that epoch and era involved false gods. So the argument that it is a quote unquote secular festival, that is the argument that uh, the first group does, it is a presumption, it is not explicit. And one can flip it around and say, in fact, the Prophet through this hadith is forbidding 
religious festivals. And that is an interpretation that many ulama have. So you can use this hadith to forbid, uh, let's say Christmas, to forbid uh, Easter, because that is a festival. You know, back in the day, uh, religion and society were always together. There was no such thing as such a public uh, event without religiosity, without some element of servitude to their false gods. So the notion that this festival was not religious is an assumption, and it is true to make a counterclaim, number one. Number two, we said that from an usul al-fiqh perspective, this hadith, in reality, the max that you can use, and I don't have a problem if it were to go that way, and as I said, I am sympathetic to that, is to say that it is makruh to have a national festival that everybody is celebrating publicly. But you cannot derive from this hadith that it has anything to do with a personal uh, celebration. And this is, by the way, what I'm teaching you here, what I'm saying now, this is exactly what I was saying literally uh, 20, uh, five years ago, uh, more than that, actually, when I was, you know, in the in Medina and still ascribing to that school. And the point number three, Ibn Taymiyyah himself. If you go back to his writings, and I encourage all of you to do that. And I've said this many times with my respect that many of those who follow this great alim, uh, they misquote him or they misunderstand him. Ibn Taymiyyah never spoke about personal individual festivals. He's, he was speaking about communal festivals. Therefore, to celebrate a national day, for example, definitely Ibn Taymiyyah would have said that that is not to be done. Ibn Taymiyyah would have argued that it is haram. I respect that, I understand that. I personally argue that the maxim can be said it is makru. But Ibn Taymiyyah himself never spoke about individual personal celebrations, such as, um, our ones that we do in our houses, anything that we do, even if it is regular. He did not speak about that. He spoke about a regular communal festival. So Ibn Taymiyyah does not have a fatwa about anniversaries and, and, and uh, birthday parties and whatnot. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, you can, you can read in by the way, you can say he would have considered it haram, that's a valid argument, but do not quote him and say Ibn Taymiyyah said birthdays and uh, anniversaries are anything. On the contrary, he does not speak about that. So that is the point with regards to understanding the uh, the hadith of the festivals. Now, as for Ibn Taymiyyah's point that we need to look at the linguistic meaning of the term Eid, this is a good point, excellent point. It is a valid principle of usul al-fiqh, and I respect that. The alternative school will argue, and this is a technical point, when a word is used in the sharia, when a word is used in the sharia, there are three, at least three levels that one has for that word. Number one is the shari definition. Number two is what is called the urfi definition. What is people understand? And number three, it is the lughawi definition or the technical origin of the word. And it is in that order. We go and we look at the word in that order. So, give you an example. When Allah says zakah, zakah has been defined by the sharia. We don't look at the origin. We don't look at how other people understand it. Zakat is a charity that Allah has prescribed. It is a per certain percentage and we must give it at a certain time. So we go to the technical definition. If the Sharia has not defined it, we go to the next level and that is how people understand it, the istilahi or the urfi definition. So for example, Allah says that, uh, treat your parents with the kindness that culture dictates. Let's say, right? Urf here, how does culture understand being good? to one's parents, we can look at that. And if there is no definition culturally, then we go to the linguistic and then we say, what does the language say? And 
In this particular case, when the Prophet is using the term Eid, the other group would argue there is no need to go to the third when the second one is understood. And the second one is, it is a, uh, a celebration that is inherently religious. It is a celebration because the term Eid was always used for a religious celebration. So the point is that, the first group, which is the Ibn Taymiyyah group, is arguing any celebration constitutes Eid. And the second group is arguing, no, what has been forbidden by the Sharia is a celebration that is inherently religious, i.e. Uh, uh, Hanukkah or uh, Easter or uh, Christmas, that is what the Sharia forbids. So it goes back to how you look at the term Eid and which level of definition do you want to go back to. And again, this is an interesting point, goes back to Usul al-Fiqh. So from the perspective of the other school, they would not look at the fact that something is repeating back and back. They're not concerned with the linguistic definition because that, that's going one level down. It has already been defined by how it is understood by the people that the Prophet is speaking to. So their argument is the Sharia has forbidden religious festivals. That's their argument. Their take from this hadith is religious festivals, whereas Ibn Taymiyyah's take is any repetitive public festival. By the way, to be fair, Ibn Taymiyyah said public. He never mentioned private uh, festivals. The notion of deriving a private festival from this term is something that the modern Salafi movement has done. It is not something that is found in Ibn Taymiyyah's work. Now, this is then the hadith that uh, of um, uh, Anas ibn Malik. The next argument that is used is the notion of tashabbuh. The notion of tashabbuh, the notion of imitating uh, non-Islamic non cultures and civilizations. And this, in my humble opinion, is an extremely tenuous, weak argument to be made. And that is because the camp that uses this uh, understanding is not able to provide a clear-cut definition, a solid definition, a consistent definition that they can then apply to their own lives. We have to be very clear, when, a, when something is forbidden, let's say tashabbub al-kuffar, the concept of imitating other civilizations, we need to be very, very clear, demarcate the rule, give us the maxim, what constitutes imitation? what is allowed and what is not allowed. And by the way, even Ibn Taymiyyah argued in his book, Iqtidar Asr al-Mustaqim, that imitating non-Muslims is something that is completely contextual. It changes from time to place, to society, to culture. And in fact, Ibn Taymiyyah explicitly argues that even your understanding, uh, sorry, your, your environment will have an impact. For example, he says, if a Muslim is living in a non-Muslim land, we don't expect him to dress like the people of his land back home, he may dress with his own surroundings if that is what will be beneficial for him. Because in that case, he is not going out of his way to imitate. Here's the point here, Ibn Taymiyyah himself understood that the notion of tashabbu is contextual. And my polite argument is that those scholars from one region of the world who make a blanket call of everything being tashabbu, they are not understanding that tashabbu is relative. And what might be tashabbu for one of their own sons in the uh, villages of Saudi Arabia is not necessarily tashabbu for somebody born and raised over here. And that is the fundamental problem of using the tashabbu card is that it is culturally uh, relative. And 
Another thing that can be said to be very pedantic, to be very advanced here, is that the notion of being different from other faith traditions was only revealed and it only came towards the end of Islam when Islam had the upper hand politically. Throughout the Meccan period and throughout the early Madani period, the Prophet ﷺ in fact liked to conform with the Ahli Kitab as many narrations show. And from this, a number of our ulama have derived that the notion of being different is something that Muslims are required to do when they are in their lands and have the upper hand, that they now demonstrate the superiority of Islam even via culture. However, when that is not the case, the Sharia does not require you to be different uh, in the cultures of the peoples around you. And we also need to understand that uh, tashabbu is contextual. It changes from time to time and place to place. And we have to be very clear what comes under tashabbu. And I'm going to use some, some you know, uh, humorous examples, but let's be very blunt here, right? Most of us came from overseas. My grandparents were born in India. My parents raised in Pakistan. You know, my, my grandfather, as far as I'm aware, pretty sure he never ate a, a burger in his life. He never ate a, a steak in his life. Is it tashabbuh if his grandson uh, loves, you know, burgers and steaks? I mean, medium rare steaks, remember, medium rare, very important. Is it tashabbuh that I have a, a philosophy of food that is different? Um, cultures, clothing varies from time to place. To what level are you gonna consider tashabbuh? Because I, I, I was told the other day that we should not be eating uh, turkey. Uh, you know, this weekend for, for Thanksgiving. And why? Because that's imitating uh, the non-Muslims. Okay, Jayid, if that's your perspective, then let me ask you, do you know where biryani came from? Biryani, the famous dish biryani. Uh, the biryani dish actually comes from, originally from Persia. The term biryani, it's a Farisi term that means a type of cooking, it's a type of, of, of frying. And when the Mughals came, they took this Farisi dish and they spiced it up and added it and whatnot, and they introduced it to the Muslims of India. Can you, uh, can you, um, how, what would you say if somebody said eating biryani is haram because it is imitating non-Muslims? If you make biryani haram, anyway. So my point is that you're gonna say biryani is, is haram or tashabbub al-kuffar, I mean seriously? And, and the origin of biryani is non-Muslim, by the way. That's what I'm trying to explain here. So why is eating turkey uh, consider tashabbu and eating biryani is not. Think about that. We need a consistent, uh, you know, a very consistent rule here. Why is eating a burger and fries not tashabbu? And if I were to eat a, a turkey uh, on any day, whether it's this weekend or any weekend, why would it be a tashabbu? Because again, remember the notion of repetitive or a day or whatnot, that's one paradigm. The other paradigm says no big deal. It's a culture. It's a habit. If I were to eat turkey any day, if I were to eat a day after tomorrow or, or today, why would there be anything wrong with that? The point is that cultures change and therefore the notion of tashabbuh changes as well. And plenty of examples can be given. Uh, for example, in early Islam, there are many narrations from the tabi'un, from the students of the Sahaba. There was a certain type of cap that uh, the Yahud would wear. It's not a skull cap, it's a slightly different one. It was called a tayadisi, a tayadisi cap, a tayadisi cap. And we have numerous narrations when the Muslims conquered other lands and they saw the Yahud wearing this, they said we should not be wearing this. But slowly but surely, that cap became common in Muslim lands and people began to embrace it until 
one of the most famous scholars of hadith who wrote one of the earliest books of hadith. He was called Imam At-Tayalisi because of that cap. So what was once considered imitation and haram, within a hundred years, he died like 240 something, within a hundred years, one of the greatest scholars of Islam is called after that cap. And Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, he comments on this and he said that in the early times, that cap was a custom only of the Yahud. But over time, it became common and so it became permissible. Here's the point. In early times, something is imitation. A hundred years later, it is not imitation. Pretend you were in the middle, what would you do? What is, is it imitation? Is it not? There's a gray area. There's a, there's a reformation, cultural reformation uh, going on. The same can be said of many other things as well. We have narrations from the early tabi'un about how to wear a turban, okay? And that was abandoned within a short period of time. We have many narrations about covering the head. And we have other narrations from the scholars of Andalus saying, well, no, you don't have to cover the head. It's a cultural thing. And that's my position as well. The covering of the head is not from the Sharia. It is a cultural habit. And uh, there are many fatwas of ulama that said uncovering the head is imitating the non-Muslims. Well, maybe it was in their culture. I'm not arguing that. The sharia does not come with head caps or no head caps. The sharia comes with generic guidelines. And I agree when Muslims are in a position of power and they are the majority of a society, why should they abandon their ways and uh, look and imitate other civilizations? In British India, when the Mughal dynasty um, uh, when the uh, mutiny took place, or I should call it the first war of independence in 1857, and the British marched in and arrested, uh, you know, the, the, the final, the Mughal emperor and took over and the East Indian Trading Company became the British Raj. Uh, there was a backlash from the ulama of India and a number of fatawa were given, famous fatawa, a certain uh, Molvi Abdul Hay al-Surati. He wrote a treatise in which the entire treatise was about it is haram to dress like the uh, to dress like the British and to wear coats and pants. And he said, Angrez ki topi, like to wearing the hat of the, of the, of the British is haram and sinful. You know, I agree with that fatwa that in 1860, if you were a Muslim in India, why would you leave the, the culture of your people and dress like the occupi occupiers? Why would you do that? But you see, should we take uh, Imam Surati's treaties of 200 of 150 years ago and then apply it in America. I just gave you the example of the Tayalis. I gave you the example of other things as well, that these things change over time. The famous scholar Rashid Rida of 120 years ago, the famous, the greatest scholar of Islam 100 and something years ago, that he was asked about wearing European style hats. And the Muslims of South Africa asked him this. And uh, in Egypt, it was not common at the time. He said that for those people in your lands, it is permissible because their situation is different than ours. The point being, tashabbuh varies from time to place to culture. And people living amongst others are not going out of their way to imitate them. That's the key point here. It is not allowed to take a fatwa about tashabbuh from a scholar who has never stepped foot outside of his land and apply it in a land literally across the world. For us here in America, we speak English. We take the technology of the West. We use the computers built by the non-Muslims. Is anybody gonna consider this tashabbuh? If you're not gonna consider the cuisine tashabbuh and wearing pant and shirt tashabbuh, then why? Why is taking on the overall cultures of the people around us tashabbu as well? Tashabbu has to have two conditions. So I said you need to have a clear maxim, a demarcation. Listen to me now. This is what is tashabbu. Number one, 
Tashabbuh requires an intention to want to imitate another group. Because of the verb tashabbuh means tafa'ul means you go out of your way. There is a difference between tashabbuh and tashabuh. Tashabuh means you're following them because everybody's doing it. Tashabuh means you're eating the food of the people you happen to live in. Here's the point, your brothers and sisters. The Prophet ﷺ dressed like the non-Muslims of his time and ate like the pagans of his time. That was his culture. Did he come and change the dress code? No. So when he says, whoever imitates a nation will be amongst them, listen to this carefully. Was he an Arab, yes or no? Yes. Did he imitate the Arabs in their culture? Yes. So then, if Arabs can imitate Arabs and they're still Arabs, and if Pakistanis and Indians and Bengalis and Sudanis and uh, people from Nigeria and people from Malaysia and Indonesia can imitate their cultures and be considered amongst them, well then Western Muslims can imitate their culture of their time and place as long as the Sharia makes it halal and they are a part of them. You see, here's the point. The hadith is not necessarily negative in all of its connotations. If an Arab imitates other Arabs, he is an Arab, that's true. Okay, how about a Muslim born and raised in Indonesia? Well, shouldn't he imitate Indonesia? How about a Muslim born and raised in America? He may take the garb and the cuisine and the culture that is halal. Now, if the Sharia says dating is haram and the American culture says go date, we say, okay, the Sharia has made it haram. But listen carefully, the Sharia has not told us how to dress. It's told us the generics of what is awrah and whatnot. The Sharia has not told us the cuisine. Biryani is not bid'ah. Hamburgers is not bid'ah. Steaks are totally halal, but remember only if they're what? Remember, medium rare. Okay, so my point being, there is no tashabbuh in your culture, if that is your culture. And we are living in lands that are not the lands of our ancestors. So there's going to be a natural progression. This leads me to a bit of a psychological tangent. And I hope you guys are following. There's a lot, a lot to unpack in this lecture. You see, the reality is, let's put fiqh aside for a second. Let's put fiqh aside for a second. What we are really seeing is the erosion of one culture as his children grow up in another culture. And this is a natural reality of any uh, a group of people that have come to another land. Forget Islam or any, any time any group comes to another land, the elders are saddened by what they see of their children and grandchildren leaving things that they considered a part of their ancestor and heritage. But what that group doesn't understand is culture is not static. Culture is organic. Culture breeds in and breeds out. It gives and it takes. Islamic culture itself is not unified. How Muslims live in Indonesia is not the same as how Muslims live in Africa. And that's not the same as how Muslims live in the Middle East. And Islam allowed for all of these diverse cultures. Now that Islam is growing in the Western world and we have American Muslims and Canadian Muslims and British Muslims, then there's going to be these culture wars. There's going to be these tensions between the next generation and between the elders. And there's gonna be sometimes cultural clashes, sometimes religious clashes, and sometimes both types. And we have to be broad-minded enough, wise enough, religious enough, academic enough to separate the cultural from the religious. And this is one of those connotations, okay? Um, the reality again, 
to be personal here, I mean, again, I remember even growing up, Allah blessed me to be with my, my grandmother. She used to live here before she passed away. She di died in America. And so I grew up and she was in our household and she did not speak English, right? And she was obviously very, uh, very <laughs> frustrated at all of her grandchildren, you know, not being as, as, you know, Indian Pakistani as she would like them to be, you know, and she would call us Angrezki Olad, you know, you are the children of the British, because again, that's the term British, because from her time, 1920s, when she's growing up, you know, to act like this and speak like this and have American English or whatever, she's considering this to be uh, British, you know, customs and culture. And there's an element of truth that she feels saddened that her own children, grandchildren are not going to speak the language as fluently as her, you know, the adab and whatnot. It's a part of life though. You're, you, you just have to be very pragmatic and understand you're not going to, to save the heritage that you, you cherish. What you need to save is the religion. And therefore, we need to have a frank conversation. What is religious and what is not religious? Is cuisine religious? Is clothing religious? That's the question we need to have. And the argument being made by Camp One is that uh, any type of celebration is religious. And what is being made by camp two is that no, celebrations are only religious when they deal with religion, right? I.e., I gave the example Hanukkah and whatnot. So that's the fundamental divide. And tashabbu as well. Let's be again very frank here. So if tashabbu means doing something that your ancestors did not do on a regular basis, let's say, right? Again, let me be very frank here. So going on a family vacation every July because that's when summer is out, right? It's an annual festival, annual habit. And you go through the same routine of planning it out and packing your bags and going. What if somebody were to make an argument? Why isn't that tashabbu? Did your grandfather have a vacation every July? Did he go take the kids out on a family trip every July? Why isn't that tashabbu? Again, you need to have a very consistent maxim because what happens is camp one, and I say this with respect, camp one, picks and chooses what it considers tashabbu and what it doesn't consider tashabbu. And that's not the way Islam is going to flourish here. You need to be very, very consistent and you need to apply the ruling even if you don't like it. You can say culturally, I don't want to do that, fine, but don't bring in religion. Do not say it is haram to do that. You can say as a father from this heritage, I don't want my children to do this. Good, fair enough. But do not say Allah and His Messenger don't want you to do this because that's a totally different uh, paradigm altogether. So the point being that I was saying, what is tashabbu? Number one, there has to be the intention to go out of your way to imitate a culture that is not your culture. If you're imitating the culture you're born into, you're raised in, that cannot be tashabbu because that is your culture. Just like Arabs are Arabs and Americans are Americans. Number two, the tashabbu that is going to be haram is the tashabbu that is unique to the religion and not to the culture of a civilization. I.e., to wear a cross is tashabbu. To celebrate uh, uh, Christmas is tashabbu because that is a religious festival. So tashabbu is religion. Anything that you are imitating the religion that is unique, that would be haram. Otherwise, to to follow your own culture is not the haram tashabbu. This is called tashabbu, which means you have agreed with them. I.e., I like to eat, you know, burger and fries. I love my steaks. That's not tashabbu. This is tashabbu. I grow up in a culture. I absorb the cuisine and the dress code and the mannerisms and the language and the hand gestures and the thought processes. And yes, even how they go about their lives. Their their uh, you know uh, even for example again to be very blunt here. One of the biggest tensions happening right now 
is the gender roles of between couples, right? That when couples get married, they're kind of confused, like how should we be acting towards one another? Should it be the same way as our parents? Should it be what we're seeing in our society? All of this, these are ongoing conversations and these are the natural signs of a civilization settling amongst another and its second and third generation coming forth. So. To summarize this point before we move on, there's again so many multiple points I'm trying to explain to you the different paradigm. There is no tashabbuh when it comes to culture, if you're living in that culture, you're born and raised in that culture. It would be haram if the sharia says something is haram, drinking is haram. Okay, all of this culture drinks, we're not allowed to drink. There would be a type of tashabbuh. Any tashabbuh that involves that which is haram inherently or that which is ritualistic, okay, that which is cle uh, clearly unique to one faith tradition, anything. So for example, what, it, what is an example of tashabbuh? To dress up like a Christian priest, to dress up like a Buddhist monk, that is tashabbuh. That is tashabbuh. Otherwise, wearing a pant and shirt, a regular jeans, a t-shirt, there's no tashabbuh there. We're living in their lands. Now, for a kid in some village in Saudi Arabia that has never stepped foot outside and they're all dressed in thobes, for that kid to go out of his way and imitate a culture other than his own, yes, that might be tashabbuh. But for us living in these lands, we are following, this is our peoples now. And our children, you know, like it or not, they're more American than they are your grandfather's uh, ethnicity. That is just a fact and you have to come in to, to terms and deal with it. So there is no tashabbuh when it comes to cuisines, eating turkeys, burgers, having a barbecue on the 4th of July. Is this tashabbuh or not? Again, if you're gonna say that Thanksgiving is not allowed, well then, how about the 4th of July barbecue? Everybody's just having a casual barbecue. And I, I know many people, by the way, they think that Thanksgiving is haram, but they're the ones having the 4th of July barbecue. Why? What is the difference? They will argue Thanksgiving is inherently religious. And this leads us to our uh, next point here. And that is that, is it what constitutes paganistic or religious? What constitutes something that is religious? And by the way, uh, I have to before move on here, <laughs> the notion of tashabbuh, I'm speaking as if, I'm speaking as if all of us are immigrants and we're, and we're battling between our grandfathers and our, uh, you know, our grandsons. And we are neglecting, especially in the American uh, conversation, 30% of American Muslims are African Americans. 30% are born and raised here for many, many generations. So what tashabbu is it for them if they celebrate Thanksgiving? Where is the tashabbu? They've done this for centuries. What tashabbu is it for them if they do the 4th of July? So we're neglecting that part of the conversation. Okay, so there is no tashabbu uh, for those born and raised in these lands or now permanently living in these lands when they act and dress and speak in the culture of their own lands as long as the sharia allows that particular cultural manifestation. Okay, we now get to this issue of, oh, but... So I've spoken about quite a lot about bid'ah and the notion of Eid and whatnot. Now we get to, oh, but Thanksgiving is religious and the origins of birthdays are paganistic, okay? So now we get to another issue altogether. And now let's deal with that one. And they say that these holidays will come under haram festivals because they are inherently religious. And the response to this is very clear. We base the ruling on whether something is religious or not based upon how it is perceived and not based upon its origin in forgotten antiquity. 
Do people associate religion with this practice? Do they associate the worship of other than God? Do they associate another religion with this? If so, then yes, it is a religious festival. Or is it generic and celebrated by people of all faiths and no faiths, and it has become disconnected completely from its antiquity, from its uh, ancient history? And in fact, uh, and, and in fact, you have no alternative except to follow the position that you must look at today's understanding and not yesterday's or a thousand years ago. And I'll give you some simple example. The vast majority of you who are critical of, uh, you know, these types of things that are, that are deemed to be haram, you yourselves are using things in your daily life that have pagan origins, okay? In fact, I can quote you literally, I have a list of, in a longer lecture that I've given, dozens of things. We can start with the days of the week. If you were to really be consistent, it would be shirk and haram for you to say Monday or Sunday or Tuesday or Wednesday, because the term Wednesday comes from the Greek god Odin, you know, Woden, they pronounced him. And so they honor, honored him by saying Wednesday. And Sunday was meant to honor the god of the sun. And Monday was me meant to honor the god of the moon. And the months, the, the months as well, August and June and July, are also meant to honor, you know, various gods of the ancient uh, Greeks and the Romans. And we can go on and on. In fact, the Indians and Pakistanis and Bengalis listening here, are you going to say that Mehendi for your weddings are pagan? despite the fact that the Mehendi ritual, the Mehendi ritual is inherently based on Hindu practice, right? The Mehendi is based on the yellow and putting this and that. Uh, this is literally coming straight out of Hinduism. But when Muslims embraced Islam, they cut off the paganistic roots and they kept this festival as a part of their uh, as a part of their wedding uh, feast and no muslim in india pakistan bangladesh nepal no muslim who celebrates uh, the mehndi of the wedding even thinks that it has a hindu origin so what is the ruling based on is it based on a thousand years ago or is it based on right here and now? And I'm arguing you must live your life based upon the here and now or else you will be forced to go through each and even the letter T, by the way, is most likely based upon the cross. Are you gonna now stop using the letter T in everything that you write? So we have to be consistent, dear brothers and sisters. All too often, uh, this topic, people become emotional and they don't really think things through, which is why I said we need to be very frank about what the Sharia allows, what the Sharia does not allow. We do not care about the origins of something. We care about how it is perceived. So the notion that blowing out candles has something to do with paganism, by the way, even that is contested, is to be academic. You know, this is mythology. All too often, us Muslims, we love to just pass on mythologies. The tie we say was based on a cross. No, this is a blatant lie. The tie has nothing to do with the cross. But we have these types of, you know, mythologies we love to spread. Maybe, maybe it was 5,000 years ago, the notion of a cake and, and festivals and whatnot. Uh, but these days, Nobody on earth associates blowing out candles with any type of ritual to another god. And so the notion of ritual uh, is not there. Therefore, we cannot use that argument when it comes to uh, considering these things to be not allowed. Now, again, uh, all of this, uh, so, uh, well, let me, before I get there, so uh, let me move on to the next point here. Uh, and that is that, uh, the notion, therefore, of, uh, oh, sorry, the example I had, sorry, that I had the example. So actually, there's an example from the Sharia that we can use here to also uh, help us prove this point. There was a festival in the days of Jahiliyyah uh, called Atira. 
and it was a regular festival that would take place in the month of Rajab. Okay, so this is a Jahili festival that had paganistic roots. It had some type of sacrifice to the gods and mythologies and whatnot. It's called Al-Atira. And it was done in the month of Rajab. So now we have a case study that there was a festival in Jahili times. The Arabs would do it all the time. What happened when Islam came? Pause here, footnote. This is a controversy amongst the Madahib, but the position that seems to be the best is that uh, the Shafi'i school and others, they, they reconcile a number of contradictory, apparently contradictory hadith in this regard, and they have a very clear position in this regard. So the festival is called Atira. It was done in the month of Rajab. And we have sets of hadith that seem to conflict with one another. For example, one hadith says there is no Atira uh, in Islam, and the other hadith says whoever wants to do Atira, let him, whoever doesn't, th then let him as well. And the Shafi'i school, and many of the Hanbali scholars as well, and this seems to be the correct position, they interpreted these sets of hadith very easily. And this is, I think, the obvious interpretation. And that is that when the Prophet is negating there is no Atira, he is negating the paganism. He is negating the notion of it being linked to a idol and, and the superstition that was there. We don't have to go into all the superstition. And when he affirmed, whoever wants to do atira, let him do it. Whoever doesn't, let him. He is talking about the slaughtering of the animal and the feeding of the guests, which is basically the festival, okay? So he negated the paganistic element. And then he said, whoever wants to you know, have the, the, the meat, no problem. Whoever doesn't, no problem. In other words, religion has nothing to do with eating the meat or not, right? And this is the interpretation of a number of ulama, and it seems to be uh, the strongest interpretation. So based on this, this is essentially what Thanksgiving is. This is essentially what all of these other private festivals are, that there is no association with any worship to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, by the way, with regards to Thanksgiving, if you want to be very woke and you want to say this is a, a commemoration of the massacre, etc., totally fine. I'm not telling you to celebrate. You may use that card and you may say, I'm not going to celebrate because people were massacred and it's an imperialism and the invasion of the Europeans and Columbus didn't discover America. And you know, you're all right, excellent. But do not bring in the Sharia and say Allah and His Messenger. Say that this is an unethical uh, celebration because of the fact that it perpetrated X, Y, and Z. No problem, you have the right to say that. My job here is to tell you what the Sharia says. The Sharia does not have a ruling on repetitive personal celebrations. That's what I'm telling you. You don't wanna celebrate, good for you. It's better for your money, better for your whatnot. But do not bring in the Islam card and say Allah has forbidden, or the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has forbidden personal private celebrations because the Sharia is silent on those uh, celebrations. So this point, the next point is that there is no notion of origin. We're not interested in origin, we're interested in how it is culturally perceived. And we can test this by looking at who celebrates the festival. So do Jews, you know, uh, do, do, do Jews celebrate Christmas? Now you will say, I have a Jewish friend that does, so you're right, maybe you do. But generally speaking, do Jews celebrate Christmas? No, they don't. Do Christians celebrate Hanukkah? No, they don't. These are religious festivals. We look at the norm, we don't look at the outliers. We'll always find some people that break the rule. Generally speaking, Christians celebrate Christmas, Jews celebrate Hanukkah, you know, uh, other faith uh, tr uh, traditions celebrate other festivals. These are the festivals that we are not allowed to imitate. Okay. Do Jews, Christians, Buddhists, agnostics, atheists, everybody, do they celebrate Thanksgiving? Yes, they do. In fact, Thanksgiving is one of the most American celebrations. All faiths and no faiths do it. 
So there is no religion associated with Thanksgiving. So it becomes a, a festival that is generic in nature. As I said, it is a personal festival. It's not something that people are, uh, you know, it's not a national uh, festival, even though there's a day off, but you do it at your house. There's no uh, public festivities over there. Therefore, uh, to conclude therefore, now <laughs> I hope you guys are following. I went over a number of points and this is a convoluted lecture. Each one of these points can be elaborated into a much larger lecture. I hope you were following. My point was to demonstrate that one group of ulama has considered festivals to be both bid'ah and tashabbuh. And I respect and understand that. However, when you go deeper and you look at their definitions, in fact, the majority of ulama of our times, the majority of ulama, the mainstream bulk of the ummah outside of one strand of Islam has a different understanding of rituals, a different definition of bid'ah, and a different understanding of, in fact, even Ibn Taymiyyah's understanding of tashabbu is the same as this. The followers of Ibn Taymiyyah don't understand that tashabbu is relative. Ibn Taymiyyah himself said tashabbu is relative. Ibn Taymiyyah cannot be used for the tashabbu card, actually. That's not a valid point to be used over here. But the point is that they say the tashabbu card. In response to this, we say the majority of the ummah does not view any type of festivals that are not religious in nature to be dictated by the sharia. It is neutral. So if you choose to celebrate or you choose not to celebrate, the sharia is silent on it. Now, if you bring in something haram, that's something else. If there's gonna be alcohol, well then obviously we're not talking about the festival, we're talking about the alcohol over there. If you bring in something that is inherently evil, so that is not intrinsically linked to the uh, celebration itself. So to summarize therefore, we can uh, divide festivals into a number of categories. The first category are festivals that are inherently associated with another religion, and they're understood to be religious in nature. Examples are Easter and Hanukkah and Christmas. The default with regards to all such festivals is that it is impermissible for Muslims to adopt the rituals and the customs of those festivals, much less to actually celebrate. Because we are a people whom Allah has given two Eids and the Hadith of Anas applies in this category according to the majority interpretation, that we do not have a religious festival other than those two uh, festivals. The second category of festivals are community festivals that are encouraged by society but are not religious in nature. And the two classic examples for this are the 4th of July and the Thanksgiving uh, of, of uh, North America. I believe that uh, Thanksgiving is not universal in, in most other countries, but America, Canada have their versions of Thanksgiving. And these festivals, uh, I would argue, the Sharia inherently is silent on them. The max that can be said is that there is a potential of it becoming makruh if society, if Muslims began to uh, adopt or encourage this to be a competition somehow with the Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha, which I don't see happening. Otherwise, the default is that these are not something that the Sharia has anything to say about. Therefore, if you choose not to celebrate, no problem. And if you choose to have a turkey on Thanksgiving or to have a barbecue on the 4th of July, no problem. The Sharia is not telling you either this or that. There is no tashabbuh when you are doing everything else. Why is eating a hamburger on the 4th of July tashabbuh and wearing pant and shirt is not tashabbuh? I'm asking you for a solid maxim and you cannot give it to me. So that's why I'm saying, I know it's emotional. I know you think, but the religion is not gonna be destroyed if you eat a hamburger on halal, must be zabiha on the 4th of July or eat turkey on Thanksgiving because you're doing everything else. You're speaking their, their languages, our language now. Stop this there in us. We are a part of this 
this culture now. We are now, your children are far more American than your ancestors were. Okay, we have to deal with it now. We have to get over this notion of us versus them cultural-wise. There is an us versus other faiths. We have to teach our children our theology, our aqidah, our rituals. But culture, these are gonna be ongoing things and generally speaking, as generations go on, they will adopt more and more of the culture of the people of this land because this is their land and our land. That is the uh, reality. So second is culture, is festivals of a communal nature. Now, and I said that the, the, the default is that their sharia is silent on them. Now, some of these festivals are in between categories one and two, i.e., there is still an element of religion, but it is not fully religious. And I think the best example for this is Halloween, where Halloween is still not a fully uh, secular holiday, uh, in that there's still a very clear association with the jinn and shayateen and devils and whatnot. And therefore, I think definitely an argument can be made that uh, these types of festivals are closer to category one than they are to category two. And it is definitely safer for the Muslims to avoid uh, you know, that category. So we don't want our children to dress up like shayateen. We don't want to flirt with Satanism and whatnot. And it is definitely best because there's clear elements of, of paganism. Now, if somebody were to argue that in the subculture I live in, whatever you know, suburb or whatnot, you know, that notion is gone. I can see, and again, this goes back to uh, remember we talked about you know point A in time it is the shabbu point B in time it is not the shabbu in the middle there's going to be that that balance or whatnot many of these festivals Thanksgiving for example might have been very religious when the pilgrims did it right when the pilgrims did it, it would have been the inherent definition of religion but over time it became completely secular it is very possible a hundred years from now the way things are headed might be that. Christmas will become totally secular. It might be, I'm just saying. And no notion of Christianity will be left with it. When that happens, it will be like the mehendi of our brides as well. And I know it sounds shocking or whatnot, but that is the reality. That when that happens, the verdict will change as well. But for right now, as we speak, the year is 2020 when I'm giving this lecture. For right now, as we speak, generally speaking, it is understood that Christmas is a Christian holiday. I understand that is changing over time, but right now the association is very clear. And because of this, we say Muslims do not uh, do this. When that association is totally gone, then it will be like using the word Monday to describe Yom al Ithnain. We don't say Yom al Ithnain, we say Monday, the moon day. And we have no association with the moon god, even though when that day was done, that association was intrinsically uh, linked and it was meant to venerate. Every Monday would be a veneration of the moon god. It is now gone and it is halal, alhamdulillah, to say Monday. So the ruling is based upon the existence of the cause, al-illah. And when the cause is gone, the ruling will be gone as well. So the second category is communal festivals. We said festivals that have no religious inherent value, completely halal. There are some that are in the middle and therefore they should be uh, definitely avoid on the safer side. The third type of festival is a personal celebration that a person does in his or her own life. And it's not a communal one. And this, I am firmly, uh, you know, a believer that this is neither bid'ah nor tashabbuh. There is no cause to forbid something of this nature. It cannot be a bid'ah because you do not expect Allah to reward you for celebrating the birthday of your son. And it is not tashabbuh because everybody's doing it. Your own culture is doing it. And by the way, with my utmost respect, the very culture that says it is tashabbuh, their own culture has adopted this practice as well. Their own children are doing it. And you know, again, I'm, I'm sorry to be blunt here, but 
in their own dress and their mannerisms and their code and whatnot, there is so much tashabbuh. Their ancestors do not wear watches, by the way, and all of them are wearing watches. Their ancestors do not wear the type of garment, or to be brutally honest, I said this to one of my uh, uh, colleagues when I was having a polite back and forth. I said, you know, the, the people that are saying tashabbuh did not wear undergarments, you know, they're talking about tashabbuh, the undergarments that uh, everybody's wearing now, you, you know I'm talking about the undergarments, right? That was not worn by their grandfathers. Is that tashabbuh, right? So we need the maxim, we need the clear-cut ruling. What constitutes tashabbuh? Why are you picking and choosing what constitutes tashabbuh? In the end of the day, the only uh, uh, clear-cut uh, tashabbuh is going to be when you imitate the religious festivals and practices of another nation or you imitate another civilization because you have an inferiority complex, not your own civilization that cannot be uh, tashabbu. So uh, personal celebrations cannot be dictated by the sharia, and the default is that it is completely permissible. So my position is that birthdays and uh, uh, anniversaries and whatnot, it is mubah. It's not, I'm not saying it's mustahab, it is mubah. And really think about it, really honestly. Do you really think that the sharia would forbid a husband and wife being romantic on their uh, on their uh, wedding day every year? What the sharia wants to increase love. The sharia wants the marriage to succeed. It's of the goals of the sharia and the culture we have been in. We have absorbed that. Oh, on that day, let's make it special. Let's go out to a, a romantic restaurant. Let's have a romantic evening together. And I'm being brutally honest here. Do you really think that something in our Quran and Sunnah forbids the couple to be romantic on the night that they got married? So what if it's the Gregorian? calendar. They're not expecting to come closer to Allah. It's not an act of worship. That's the point here. They're not expecting a reward for going to a romantic restaurant. Dare I say they should expect a reward if their intention is right. They want the marriage to uh, to succeed inshaAllah. But my point is that dear brothers and sisters, I know this is a sensitive topic. I know some of you are just waiting to release the refutation videos on this. I know uh, a lot of people think that by opening this door, you're opening the destruction of Islam. I'm just asking you to read, read, read understand cultural anthropology, understand that this is a natural battle. It's natural, nothing unnatural. Every civilization is worried as a civilization changes. Frankly, we see this in the far right. We see this in, I don't wanna to get too political here, but with the rise of a large group of people, when they're scared that immigrants are coming, changing, there's this fear. And we also have that fear when you see our culture eroding. So we need to be wise and we need to preserve what Islam wants us to preserve, which is our aqidah, which is our our belief, which is our rituals of faith. And we need to understand our children and then our grandchildren are going to adopt the values of the society around us. It is inevitable. It's inevitable. And we have to understand the Sharia understands and allows. And that is why the cultures of Muslim worlds were different wherever Islam went. Wherever Islam went, the peoples of that land adopted Islam, adopted their culture, and they came forth with a unique culture. This is gonna happen in America and England and Canada and Australia and all Western lands as well, that we've adopted the culture of this land, we have our faith, and we're gonna produce a subculture of Muslim Americans. We're gonna to have to accept this, this, this reality and my argument is that personal rich, uh, personal uh, festivals are not rituals, personal festivals are mubah. Now, you want to argue that, uh, uh, that uh, there's uh, you know, other issues here, for example, israf and whatnot. I say, okay, don't celebrate. And again, for the record, I have never had a birthday party in my life, for the record. 
my parents did not grow up that way. They did not, you know, have a birthday party for me. And never once did I have a celebration, people come and whatnot. It's not something that I do. Even as I say it is halal, I will say honestly, this is my personal opinion as Yasir Qadi, personal opinion. I think it is a bit childish if an adult throws a birthday party. That's my opinion. But you see, brothers and sisters, my opinion doesn't become sharia. And the opinion of ulama 5,000 miles away of what constitutes the shabbu does not become sharia. It is not haram if a 50-year-old throws a birthday party. Haram is a big word. You can say, I don't think it's befitting the dignity. Okay, that's your opinion. Maybe he thinks it's befitting his dignity. The sharia is not based on our whims. We have to be very, very crystal clear. Did Allah and his messenger forbid something of this nature? What if he were to buy a house and he went to throw a party? Is that, we would all say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, we want to do that. Okay, so he's reached 50 and he thinks it's a good idea. Okay, I'm not gonna say anything. It's my opinion that I would not do that. But it's his opinion, he wants to do it. We don't bring in Islam when Islam itself is quiet on this. You can personally choose not to, that's your prerogative, but do not say Allah and His Messenger have forbidden when it is not the case. Birthdays cannot be bid'ah because you're not expecting Allah's reward. It is not tashabbu because it is the culture we're living in, everybody's doing it, and head to toe we are imitating other cultures. It is our culture, we're not going outside of, uh, of our culture. There is no uh, religion involved, even, even if there is a pagan origin, we are surrounded by pagan origin things that we don't even think twice about, and they are not haram if they are not intrinsically linked to other faith uh, traditions, and any other thing you might bring in, they are incidental. If there is, you know, things that are haram at that party, you will say that is haram, but don't make the entire thing haram. So I hope that inshallah ta'ala it is clear to conclude, therefore, the position that I follow. It is haram to celebrate religious festivals. Any other type of festival, it is mubah, mubah. You want to do it, do it. You don't want to do it, don't do it. But definitely do not make this a, a thing that you uh, make a, a huge importance out of because we have two main festivals and we should really make only two festivals excited for the community and something that they, the community looks forward to as an ummah. We only have two festivals that we celebrate as an ummah. As for what we do privately, you have graduated, you want to throw a, a party because you got a new house, you got a, a new job uh, or anything of this nature, the sharia is quiet on, it's your business. You want to have a, you know, uh, uh, invite family and friends over if you turn a certain age, you uh, celebrate a milestone in your life, your marriage anniversary, your child becomes five or six, there is nothing intrinsically uh, related to the sharia when it comes to these personal things. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I hope that inshallah that clarifies this answer. And until next week, jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.